0: Hi, I'm Connie Loises.
1: And this is Alex Gove.
0: And this is Strictly VC Download. Ladies and germs, how are you? Hope you're having a fine new year despite the stock market's stomach-churning gyrations. I took a look at a couple of my account balances earlier this week, and I am not doing that again. That was not a pleasant experience at all. It's actually up a bit as of this moment owing to the strong earnings apparently of Apple and some other companies, but traders say to expect more volatility, and we do. We have just two little news hits for you this week before we move on to our interview with Mitchell Green, the charismatic founder of Lead Edge Capital, a software-focused venture firm with one office in New York and another in Santa Barbara that was founded roughly a dozen years ago and is already managing $3 billion in assets through a process that Green half-kiddingly refers to as rinse and repeat. We talked with Green about the stock market and how, as a crossover investor with bets on both private and publicly traded companies, he's thinking about the best spots to place bets right now. We enjoyed our chat with him. We hope you will, too. But first, the news.
1: As if hodlers of Bitcoin didn't have enough to worry about. The currency closed today at $37,000, a slight improvement over Tuesday's low of $33,000, but still 55% down from its all-time high of $68,789 this past November. Now, The Verge reports that eight prominent senators and representatives are demanding answers from six Bitcoin mining companies about their energy use and carbon emissions. It's no secret that Bitcoin is an energy hog. Powering the computers that mine Bitcoin requires an amazing amount of electricity, so much so that if Bitcoin were a country, it would rank 27th in the world in terms of electricity consumption. Bitcoin's energy use was originally meant to be a feature, not a bug. Requiring so much energy to mine coins makes Bitcoin much harder to hack. But it's hard to imagine that Bitcoin creator Satoshi would have ever envisioned a world in which a Bitcoin mining company would buy two real-world power plants in order to feed its power demands, power that is fueled by coal waste, a known carcinogen. Yes, this actually happened. Bitcoin mining companies have changed the electricity equation to such a degree that in one New York state county, residential utility bills shot up by up to $300 after Bitcoin miners set up shop nearby. Bitcoin is an easy target for Capitol Hill. It's a shadowy world operating on the liminal side of the law with deep pockets and no discernible leader, equally as confusing and alarming to Democrats as Republicans. Given these dynamics, One wonders if new legislative restrictions can be far away.
0: In other crypto news, the Wall Street Journal's real estate section, which I just love, as readers can attest, took a look this week at the so-called crypto whales that are buying up some of the most expensive properties in the U.S., and one could guess elsewhere in the world. The story pointed, for example, to Coinbase CEO Brian Armstrong, who acquired a 19,000-square-foot modernist Bel Air estate in recent months for a stunning $133 million. That's up quite a bit from $85 million, where it sold just four short years ago. The journal pointed, too, to the $28.5 million Hollywood Hills mansion purchased last summer by Olaf Carlson Wee, CEO of the crypto-focused fund Polychain Capital and Coinbase's first employee. It's a pretty major flex by the 33-year-old Vassar grad who wrote his college thesis on Bitcoin and emailed it to Coinbase in order to land a job with the startup, which then paid him in Bitcoin for three years. Reportedly, Carlson Wee only lives there part-time, too. There were also many other interesting nuggets in the piece, such as that according to multiple real estate agents, Fred Ursum, Coinbase's other co-founder, has been actively shopping for a property in the same range as Armstrong. But what we enjoyed the most was the surprise of these same agents who are trying to adjust to customers unlike any they've seen previously. Not only are there a lot of very young people right now with extraordinary wealth, but many of them still look more geek than millionaire chic from the vantage of these top agents. In one case, a real estate agent thought an offer for a $25 million downtown Manhattan apartment must be a hoax when the agent couldn't find anything material about the buyer in an online search. Then he received a statement of the buyer's cryptocurrency holdings worth around $600 million. Indeed, according to the story, like many service professionals, real estate agents are getting with the program fast. They're throwing NFT art parties and cryptocurrency seminars for their agents. Meanwhile, sellers, say the journal, are letting it be known that they'll accept payment in cryptocurrency. For some crypto owners, one agent tells the outlet, it's gotten to the point where it's like, okay, so what do I do with all this wealth?
1: Up next, our interview with Mitchell Green of Lead Edge Capital. But first a word from our sponsor Findem Turbocharges talent acquisition with AI from search to hire Hiring for engineering leaders who have seen a company from early stage through a successful exit let's find them Hiring for account executives who have worked for multiple unicorn companies and consistently made president's club Let's find them. Only Findem lets you search by what really matters to uncover in just minutes the top diverse talent no one else is finding. Search like never before. Engage without limits and make amazing hires with Findem. Try Findem at www.findem.ai/strictlyvc. That's f-i-n-d-e-m dot a-i slash. Strictly VC.
0: And now, our interview with Mitchell Green, whose firm Lead Edge Capital mostly raises money from wealthy, networked individuals, more than 500 of them at this point. Indeed, part of Green's apparent superpower is the ability to manage all of those investors with his team of 12 or so colleagues. But he's also managed to claw his way into a number of companies that have produced big returns for the firm including Alibaba, Spotify, and Duo Security. As Bill Grabe, a former managing director with General Atlantic and a limited partner in LeadEdge, told a news outlet several years ago of Green, I've never met a guy that talks so fast and seems to make sense. He's made me a lot of money. Here's that chat. Mitchell, I'm really glad you could make time for this. It, it's great to connect. It's been, I'm realizing, a year and a half. And also, I was eager to speak to somebody who has insight into both the growth stage private venture world and also the small cap tech sector, which I, I think you are basically a crossover yeah. fund. Isn't that correct?
2: Yeah. We've got $3 billion under management and our current fund's $950. 75% of the fund is invested in private equities, like growth stage private companies, up to 25% of what we can do if we want, is into public investments. We can obviously use that for private as well. And where we focus the 25% tends to be on sub $10 billion market cap companies. We are not trading shares in Amazon or Facebook or Google. Our belief is the day before a company goes public versus the day after a company goes public, there is absolutely no difference. And there are times when Mr. Market, i.e. like now, give us better values in the public markets than the private markets.
0: Yeah. So I wanted to talk about that. So you absolutely cannot up that percentage from 25%, but are you maybe more actively putting that money to work right now in this market this week, last week?
2: We have been. I would say that we have definitely been buying the companies that we have already owned more of them, as well as initiating a few new positions. We also on the side run a public only fund. It's a vehicle that a bunch of our LPs wanted us to create this about a year ago, where we give them more exposure to the public book. So if somebody invested a dollar in our private funds, they then only had 25 cents at max capacity in privates. This just enabled them to have more exposure, and we've been investing it out of both actively.
0: How big is that public equity fund? I think we raised like
2: $150 bucks of cost like 12 months ago.
0: And how many stakes do you have in that fund?
2: I would say six or seven. I would say a month ago we had four, so we've been buying stuff.
0: Great. I don't know if you could walk us through some of those bets. I just wondered how concentrated it was because I know that you do make big-ish bets on the private companies that you fund.
2: In the private world, we'll run a fund with like 20 investments in it, but we run a barbell approach. So we will have 10% positions in our funds. You should think about it in that in all, the, all the public fund we have, this $150 million, it's now bigger because it's obviously grown. But it just runs parapasso. So anytime I make an investment in our fund five public book, we will just literally buy it at the same time in the public fund. You should think of our public fund as wanting to own five to 10 positions. We run it concentrated.
0: So my suspicion is that a lot of growth stage equity funds right now are jumping into the market because, to state the obvious, those valuations we're seeing in real time coming down, whereas... In the private market, who knows how long it could take. I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts about what's happening in the private market, if you're having conversations with founders or with syndicate partners about what to expect on that front.
2: Yeah, that's a great question. So the answer is yes. We're talking to founders, obviously. Prices really haven't come down yet. They will, if this is sustainably stays lower. I like to tell people that public markets get too drunk and have too big a hangover. They get too optimistic and too pessimistic. Public market valuations lead private market valuations 100%. You asked, are are a lot of growth equity funds probably trying to do more in publics? I'll answer it in two ways. I think a lot of growth equity funds probably can't do a lot more stuff in publics, but wish they could, because a lot of them don't have public equity mandates in their fund at all, right? But I do think that you are seeing those that can do more so like I know TCV can do publics out of their main fund. I'm sure they're looking at a lot of stuff right now. And you can bet your bottom dollar that every investor in the COD2, Dragoneer, D1, Tiger Global, those crossover funds, you can bet your bottom dollar that they are finding more value in the public markets right now than they are the private markets. And their allocation of time, I'm sure, has shifted accordingly.
1: On the private side, have you heard of some of these growth equity investors pulling term sheets?
2: Pulling? No renegotiated. Yes. I couldn't give you the name of a company, but I've heard rumblings that stuff's been renegotiated. It will happen 100%. Some of these valuations were crazy. I'm sure crazy stuff is still getting done though. I think paying a billion dollars for a company with $5 million of revenue is just a little bit crazy, but what do I know?
0: (laughs) So like I said, it's been a while since we talked and- when we talked last, we were talking about some of your bigger bets. You had invested 300 million into Alibaba in the years leading up to its IPO, more than 150 million into Spotify. You wrote a lot of money into Duo. You'd also poured a bunch of money into Ant Group. And when we talked, the company was on the cusp of the world's <laughs> biggest ever IPO. And I did think about you when the Chinese <laughs> regulator snuffed that uh. out. So, what happened there? And what do you do with that holding now? Because, I mean, its registration expired in October, I think think or last fall so like what happens there
2: so we're crazy we're buying bite dance so what the heck do i know clearly an idiot and i own alibaba my public fund right now which is ridiculously cheap it closed today at 113 it's the same price it was two months after its ipo in wow. 2014 and the company has grown a lot in, se- in eight, eight seven years. years yeah eight right. years so it's like multiples plummeted We could take up an hour talking about this. I believe that in five years, we will look back and say, darn, I wish I had bought a lot more Alibaba and Tencent and Baidu and Ant and White Dance, because these were amazing valuations when you think about the risk-adjusted returns of it. And by the way, you tend to make a lot of money buying things when the world is scared and selling them when the world is euphoric, just in general. And I think that especially is true of China. That being said, can I tell you when things are going to get better in China? No. And by the way, nor can any other talking head on the planet. Nobody knows. I have a sense, and I've heard some rumblings that the Chinese government, that some of the officials think maybe they went a little too far on some of this regulation. They don't want companies like Alibaba and Tencent to go away. They Mm. need these companies One reason I think actually China right now could be an interesting place to invest is it's actually one of the only countries in the world that's going to start lowering interest rates, whereas everybody else in the world is going to be raising interest rates. So it'll be interesting to see. Like I mean, Ant is still growing nicely. If you read the press, you would not think the company still grows nicely and generates huge amounts of profits. It does, but Alibaba trades at 11 times earnings. It's crazy. Investors tend to be smart people. Smart people don't like to own things that they can't figure out how to get an answer to. Most people in the Western world have no idea how is China going to be resolved. Nobody knows this. I do think this, though. I do think the Chinese government is actually doing a lot of things that you will see happen in the U.S. It'll just take place in slow motion. Because if you just watched a congressional hearing, it will literally, you're, like, you're embarrassed to watch it because these people do not even understand this stuff. The Chinese have figured it out. They know exactly what they're doing. I think the stuff that they're doing around privacy and around anti-monopoly and saying, hey, Alibaba, you have to allow Tencent to have their payments on the platform. Hey, Tencent on, on WeChat, you got to let Alipay be on that. I think that's good for consumers. I think these big companies in the United States Google, Facebook, Amazon, they're freaking monopolies and they need to be regulated. I don't know if it's regulated in the traditional sense of broken up. Maybe they're utilities. If everybody knew what they were doing with the data, probably people wouldn't love. And I think the Chinese have just said, no, we're just not going to allow it. And like investors just struggle with decisions that are made very fast. Versus if something happens over 10 years, you can just figure it out.
0: I completely agree that we'll see the same thing here, ultimately, uh, if if very slowly. But can I ask, what did you do with that position? Were you able to get out of it? Are you hanging on to
2: it? We still own it. We still own it. We've actually thought about buying more of it. It's a private company that obviously doesn't have a lot of shareholders that want to sell. As a foreigner, you can only buy shares that were issued in the last investor class, and none of those investors want to sell. So- I think the people that actually understand the company are not sellers. I think if you were going to try to buy stock at the price that they were going to say the IPO was going to be at, you'd probably have lots of sellers. But there's too many unknowns to be able to pay that price. But it's it's a giant company that generates huge amounts of profits. It's not going anywhere.
0: You said, too, that you own some ByteDance? Yeah. Did you buy secondary shares there?
2: We bought secondary shares there.
0: Okay. And that's maybe expected to go out in Hong Kong this year?
2: I have as much insight into that as I have in the Ant. And nobody knows- including the largest shareholders of ByteDance or Ant. Call up the premier and ask him and you'll have your answer. I unfortunately don't know him.
0: So Mitchell, I put the newsletter together every day and I see who's doing what. And it seems like, unless I'm missing deals, which I very easily could be, that lead edge has slowed down a little bit since the fall. So I wonder, A, if that's accurate, and B, if so, why? Have we slowed down? Probably a little.
2: Valuations in Q4 were crazy. We just aren't in the business of paying a billion dollars for a five million dollar revenue company. I'm sorry, all those missed stuff. But our biggest mistakes have been not paying up for the stuff we really liked and we passed on. Our anti portfolio is incredible. I'm pretty sure I would be sitting on a beach right now if I had invested a bunch of stuff in the anti portfolio. Why invest in Snowflake at five hundred million? It. At- at when it's twenty million in revenue, like that seems pretty stupid. It's not like a hundred billion dollar company. <laughs> Why do Procore at two hundred million? Because you're already in it at sixty, but have a tiny slug, and because it's a cyclical business and great management team, but cyclical construction. Oops, probably worth seven billion now. <laughs> Pinterest at two hundred million. There's no revenue, lots of users. Oops, and the list is long. We could take an hour on a call like that. And so you just have to stick to what your discipline is, and our discipline is two to five x's in two to five years, and we've found prices to be high, so we've definitely slowed down a little bit. I'm doing the same thing coming to work today as I was December 1st, November 1st, the same as July 1st. It just ebbs and flows. In the fall, though, we were definitely passing on more stuff because of price.
0: Oh, yeah. I've never seen anything like it. Mitchell, also just for the listeners out there, maybe just tell us really quickly what it is that interests you. I think of you as mostly enterprise focused.
2: So we do not pontificate on sectors at all. We do not build market maps. We don't think we're smart enough. What we do is we have this framework and we have these eight criteria. In the way we source deals, we have a firm of you know 12 associates pounding the phones, calling companies all day long. The CEO who calls you right back, that's probably not the one you want to talk to. It's the person you call every two days or email every two days for three weeks that gets back to you. Those are the CEOs that you really want to back. And again, we have these eight criteria and we're looking for ones that meet five to seven of them. So what are the criteria? Are you 10 million plus in revenue? We want companies that have product market, and it's all about execution and scale. Two, are you growing 50-plus percent a year? Three, do you have 70-plus percent gross margins? Because at the end of the day, when you're growing 10% a year, if you have margins that are 90%, you will make profits, and those will be valued on, a, on a, you know, 10 to 15 times earnings, versus if you have 30% gross margins, it's really hard to ever freaking make money. Four, are you capital efficient? And this is our version of return on equity. And what that means is, are your revenues today greater than the amount of money you've burned since inception? Now, you could have raised more, but it was what you burned. So in other words, the world is littered with $30 million revenue companies, or more likely, $10 million revenue companies that have burned $50 million to get there. Now, that doesn't mean they're not good businesses. They're just not efficient. Find me a business with $20 million of revenue that's only burned $10 million to get there. That's an efficient business. Next, do you have 90 plus percent gross retention? Next, do you have a diversified customer base? Do you have any customer over 10% of sales? Because look, what 10% of 15% of what we do is for control, we buy companies. The other 85%, 90% is we're minority investors. We just don't want to wake up and find out 25% of our revenue disappeared. Are are you recurring? I love to invest today knowing what revenues are in April. It's just an easier way to make money. And then lastly, are you profitable at the EBITDA line? If you call a 1,000 companies, you might find 10 that meet all eight criteria, none of them will take your money. They won't take my money. They won't take Sequoia's money. They won't take GA's money, nobody's money. And so you're trying to find ones that meet five to seven. And the ones that are for us always the most important are, are you 10 million plus in revenue? And are you have 90 plus percent gross retention? Now, of course, we've invested in companies that grow, grow less than 50% a year. They've just always been profitable. Now you have these criteria. What sectors does that cause you to want to invest in? software, internet marketplaces, infrastructure software, it tends to be this. So people ask us like, do you invest in biotech? And we're like, no, biotech doesn't meet any of these criteria. They're like, well do you invest in the manufacturing companies and industrial companies? We're like, no, they don't meet any of the criteria. They might meet a few, but they don't meet five to seven. And so literally the great thing about this is, you can put any company on the planet in this framework And when you find things that meet the framework, we do it like we invested in two or three years ago in this awesome logistics company called Arrive Logistics. It competes with XPO and C.H. Robinson. It's a next generation freight brokerage business. It's mainly like a freight brokerage business with some technology. It met a bunch of our criteria. It was like a five criteria deal. Now it's a logistics business. But again, it's just being super rigid in framework. We call it the lead edge eight. So- I hope that was helpful.
1: Yeah. What percentage of your dollars are lead investments? That's a good question. I think around
2: 60% of our deals in our most recent fund, a little over 20%, we were part of a syndicate. Probably like 5 to 8% was in a platform deal. These are like these big internet companies that we're not super involved in. Think Uber, think Spotify, think Alibaba, think Ant, think ByteDance. And then the rest of it would have been publics. I think it was like 15 or 16% as of like the end of the
1: year. Is that on a deal basis or a dollar basis? Dollar basis. Okay. And I would tell you that in the lead
2: bucket, we're always joining the board. We're super involved. In the syndicate bucket, I would say about half those opportunities we're on the board of as well. We spend the vast majority of our time running around the world trying to lead deals, trying to write 20 to $150 million checks. Now, look, you might find a company that wants a couple partners. You might find a company that, like in the case of Amplitude, wanted Sequoia. But we came in, but then our our operating partner, Ron Gill, joined the board. But we're spending the vast majority of our time focused on leading deals.
0: So obviously, you have stakes in China. Where are you investing geographically? I I don't think I've seen you in Latin America, but again, I miss a lot of things.
2: A a couple. You should think of it as like 85%, 90% of what we're going to do is going to be North America and Western Europe. We've had funds that have passed where a quarter of the fund is in Western Europe. I would argue that getting on an airplane from New York to London is actually faster than going from New York to Santa Barbara, where I live. And so Western Europe is easy to invest in. And then I would tell you in Latin America, we've made two investments, maybe three. We're investors in a company called eBanks, which is similar to DLocal, which is now public, big business, super profitable. And then we were investors years ago in a company called Viva Real, which has since been sold. And then in in Asia, the focus has all been on China. That being said, we have this team of 12 associates who pound the phones calling companies all day long. If they speak to more than five companies a year that are in Asia, I would be shocked. Like It's all through our network, the stuff that we've done in Asia.
0: How does a firm like yours compete in this market like when when do you win the deal and also Mitchell let's assume that this is a sustained downturn what does that mean how would that impact the way you rate right now
2: so twofold we have a lot of exciting news that we will announce in the next couple months so i'm going to leave it at that i'm very excited to go into a, a potential downturn with it. Great times to invest so when stocks are cheap, right? Our DPIs, which is distributions to pay in, we've been distributing stuff to LPs as fast as we could get it back. In the last 18 months, we've given back an enormous amount of capital to investors because we were just like, look, great company, price is nuts. Great example, TransferWise, now it's called Wise. Great payments business, Andreessen is a big investor in it. I think we bought the stock at three pounds a share. We distributed it, and we put in, I don't know, 100 million bucks, and I think we distributed it at 10 or 11 pounds a share. We're now buying it all back at six pounds a share. It's still a great business. Beat our numbers, so that's what we're doing, and we're excited by a downturn. Now look, I mean, mark to market, as I told one of my friends, there's a lot of people in Silicon Valley that are sure worth a lot less today on paper than they were three months ago, and it's shocking that nobody talks about it, because all the SaaS stocks or internet stocks are down like 50%, if you're not Google and Facebook and Microsoft. I think it's gonna be a great time to invest over the next few years. On the, how do we compete? Our value prop is very simple. If you go to our website, our fund is very different than most funds, and it's by design. Our LPs are primarily world-class executives and entrepreneurs. We have like 500 LPs in our fund, and it's people Mm -hmm. like the former CEO of Charles Schwab, the former president of Visa, the founder of Capital One. And we basically tell these people, look, don't invest in our fund unless you want to help. And so how do they help? We help with customer intros. One of our companies was looking for a female audit chair. We sent an email to our LPs. We got 50 different responses. Now, of course, not all of them were interested. Of course, they weren't all fits for the company. You just need one. When we started this a decade ago, nobody knew who the heck we were. We had to prove ourselves. And today, we've invested in some of the best software companies and led some of the best software deals in the world. You beg to get in a company like Duo. You help like crazy. You then lead the next deal. You then help like crazy. Well, then guess what? Duo sells for $2.5 billion or whatever it was. And those co-investors and other people hear about it, and it's just word of mouth. We try to just do what we say we do which is connect entrepreneurs with people that can help accelerate their businesses who have a vested interest in helping because it's their money.
0: So you're clearly fundraising. You raised $950 million the last time we talked from this massive LP network, which is phenomenal to me considering that you started 10 years ago and your funds were much, much smaller previously. So I'm wondering if you can comment on whether this next fund will be bigger. And also you mentioned that a lot of people are maybe worth half as much as they were a few months ago. How is that going to impact you?
2: My PR team said I'm not allowed to talk about the new fund at all. But when we launch it, we'll definitely tell you. But the answer is yes, it is larger.
0: You haven't gotten uh, any phone calls saying, Mitchell, I wanted to write you a $10 million check. But now I'm thinking maybe $5 million makes more sense. Actually, actually,
2: shockingly, the reverse. Because a lot of these investors we've had for so long and we've returned them so much money. And they're like, Well, listen, like you guys have been talking about like, a recession. I don't even think a recession's coming, by the way. Who the heck knows? Like at some point it will happen. Mm-hmm. I thought we were gonna have an amazing opportunity in March of 2020 to invest. We had one for three weeks. And so when prices come down, that's the best time to invest. No, we've been super fortunate. We've got a great group of people, including some great institutions as well who have been hugely supportive of us. And we've been really focused on giving money back to LPs. We're super, super focused on it.
1: Have you found any companies in the crypto blockchain space that have met your criteria?
2: Nope. Look, there's stuff we should have done. We looked early on at a company called Chainalysis that's backed by Benchmark. We have a good relationship with them. We've done a bunch of stuff with them. We probably should have done that deal. I, I think like it's a picks and shovels around crypto. If you think there was a bubble in software and internet, crypto takes that to the extremes. I think crypto is real. I don't own one coin currently. I've never bought one. I think it's very real. But I've always told people that if you think it's like the internet or bigger than the internet, then just wait for the real crash, like 99 or 2000 was, and then buy it. A lot of these blockchain companies are very, very small. So they don't meet our criteria. And then the ones that get larger, if you actually look where the returns have come from, you didn't have to invest in Coinbase early. You just could have bought Bitcoin. We've never understood like around the Robin Hoods, uh, Coinbases and some a lot of these exchanges that have raised crazy amounts of money that are big businesses. What's the long term sustainable differentiation in the business?
0: Yeah, it's a it's a great question. I think for Coinbase, they want to build out the AWS of, you know. Yeah.
2: And I'm not and yeah. we're not experts in it. I know very, very little about Coinbase. And so I could be completely wrong. And now, look, I mean, public markets are going to give those investors who are experts in this stuff a chance to buy it cheap. Some people will some people won't.
0: Right. Yeah. We're constantly grappling with what to make of it ourselves. Anyway, Mitchell, really nice to catch up with you. I so appreciate your time. Bye everyone. Thank you so much for listening. We will see you next week.